welcome to the Nine One Be Praised. I'm Jack, and I am Joe. And it is so nice to be able to say that again, Joe. If I if I didn't know better, I'd say it's been four and a half billion years. <laughs> I've been punching a diamond wall the entire time. Yeah, just going like it's like each you know clip. It's just like he get we get in an extra word. It's like hello. Several one hundred billion years, oh and God. welcome no, to the. You know that bit in the Armageddon Factor where they use the key to time to create a three-second time loop, and it's literally just you <clears> going, "Hello and welcome to the Nine One Beat." But that's as far as you get, I'm afraid. The episode <laughs> goes. Hello and hello and yeah. <laughs> Someone could do like a a, a remix, like a, a rap remix, you know, of of your intro. <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> Hello <laughs> and welcome and welcome to the Nymon Be Praised. Oh wow, we really sound like old men now. And the irony is you're not even old. So <laughs> no. no, but um I don't know. I don't I don't keep up with the with the music and the TikToks. I'm gonna try and, I'm gonna try and do it in your voice. You ready? <clears throat> oh no. Yeah, go for it. Hello and welcome to the Nymon Be Praised. And uh we're back, and uh, so Joe or Jack, rather, <laughs> what have you been up to lately? Oh well, let me tell you. <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> Rose, go on, go on. Oh well, I was at uh, Utopia this weekend, and uh, my God, we got up to all kinds of crazy shenanigans. Oh, uh, Colin Baker flirted with me. Wow, he did, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah. So, um, he, he was texting me and flirting with you. Well, I, I don't quite know how to respond to that. So I'm going to move on to the next segment. My yeah. God, you made me sound super butch. <laughs> I, I think you do that yourself. Like, I'm just, like, I'm I'm just working with the material the last, I'm given. The last time I podcasted and sounded like that, you know what I'm saying, right? You know, like... Yeah, I don't know why I'm making you sound like a Nick Briggs character. <laughs> but, okay, so we mm -hmm. haven't recorded for... a about six weeks have we something like that yeah we had this immense plan to get ahead with this season and and have like loads mm -hmm. of episodes in the bank and then i started a new job where i work from 9 p.m till 7 a.m every night uh which meant that period was out um and then just lots of other things kind of crammed in the way here there and mm. everywhere um but since we last recorded, which was our debut episode for Doomsday, yes. you have um, scuttled across Australia to meet podcast friends, haven't you? Like across across the waves. Yes, yes. Um, uh, before Sydney went into uh, lockdown, I was very lucky and I got to meet some of the people from Flight Through Entirety. I mean, which was terrifically fun. A collection of charismatic, handsome, intelligent men. You must have been absolutely in awe. Oh, I'm not saying I that was... you're not those things. Sorry. Yeah. I um you know what? I I there was just too much charming handsomeness in the room that I barely said a word. I was so shy. I was like, how could I possibly meet these levels? I'm not that handsome, I'm not that clever. Well, I would disagree with that, but um, and uh, uh, but, I, sorry, go on. No, I know I was. I was all well, I was going to say. It was very lovely. Um, I, it's been. It was that was about a month. Yeah, a bit over a month ago, a month and a bit. 
and uh, Nathan Bottomley was there, Brendan, Brendan Jones was there, um, Peter Griffith was there, uh, some of their guests were also there, so um, uh, Simon, who has been on a couple of the new series one, was there, um, uh, our friend Greg was there. Um, oh, Greg Miller, yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, and um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, our friend Greg, who apparently we cannot refer to by full name, <laughs> our friend Greg, you know, our you know, friend, keep our friend keep... from the north. That's what they say. Friend, I was about, I was about to say that yeah. friend from the north, Greg. And oh, uh, and and since the last time we spoke, I, as you said in that terrible impression of me, um, that I, I've been to Utopia and I've met Pete Lambert, who has guested on several stories of Hamster with a blunt pen knife. And Mark Rawlins, uh, Mark and Sarah both appeared on uh, No One Be Praised when we did our wonderful <laughs> Darlings mm. Invasion 2150 AD. And they were absolutely I will, I will add, I will add Pete. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, that, it sounded like a delightful bunch. I'll also add that Pete has technically been on our podcast. Oh, yeah, uh, he has. He, he, he was on the Moffat prosecution. That's right. I, I have yet to convey my anger to him to the letter in full for what he said. But this is an open invitation to you now, Pete, that uh, you need to come on and do a full episode of Nine One because I just know yeah. that would be brilliant. Yeah, good fun. So, yeah, we, we've been busy old fellas in the last month or so. Um, I, uh... well, I'm going to circle it around to what kind of what we're talking about. But you wouldn't believe that in the convention, right, there was um, a staggering number of NMDs present. Okay. For the, for the uninitiated, why don't you uh, explain the acronym? Not my doctors. Uh, oh. Yeah. yeah. So we thought we'd head back into a recording about something that those people would love to hear us talk about. That's right. We're here to talk about the villa, de, the haunting of the villa Diodati. We are indeed. We are indeed. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm not because I know um, you're not the biggest fan of the Jodie Whittaker era, but you are quite a fan of this episode. Yes, correct on both counts. Ding, ding, ding. Give that man a prize. Um, give him a skeleton. Give him a skeleton hand. I didn't or win. Two. I didn't win any prizes in the raffle at that convention. It was rigged. Sorry. Ah. Uh, uh, but yes, no, I do. I do. Uh, it is true. I'm not the biggest fan of the Whitaker era. It, it's one I have enjoyed, but it uh, sort of casually, but it, it, I, it hasn't really interested me as much as it has you, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I've often found myself kind of going, oh, this is, I'm, I'm, mm. um, uh, it doesn't engage me as, as much as other eras have, um, but um, certainly in moments it's held my attention quite well. And the haunting of the Villa Diodati is, head and shoulders my favorite story of the era um there are definitely stories i um i re i also really like you know i'm you know i've said i'm a big fan of demons of the punjab uh woman who fell to earth i liked praxius um rosa i, I rosa yeah i also like rosa woman who um, fell to earth in fact you're listening quite a lot of stories now <laughs> 
Well, I've listed four stories, and how many stories have we had so far? Twenty-two. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Well, you know, you were fairly, you were fairly kind. I to, hated the rest. I hated them all. You were fairly kind to a woman who fell to earth. You were fairly kind to resolution when we did it, whilst not endorsing mm. it entirely. Um, yeah, that's because I'm a kind person. You are kind. Person. I'm, I'm the bastard <laughs> of this duo. Um, yeah. So, well, somebody's got well, and you do it so well. But I, but I really love this era. And you know, I, I bought the series. T- so, okay. Little story for you. I was anxiously awaiting uh, the arrival of the season 24 Blu ray set uh, when Amazon informed me on the day it was supposed to arrive, it was not going to come for another four weeks. Get Mr. By this point, people had already started posting, you know, the reams of pictures on on Twitter and Instagram of of their season twenty four boxes turning up. But this is this is a thing that people do, okay. And I've said this before, but there's only two possible motives for this. One is, uh, oh, this thing has arrived, and I'm so happy, and I want to share it with the world. And two is, mine's arrived, and yours hasn't, and <laughs> in your face. And I think there may be more of an element of the second half of that than the first. But anyways. Mm-hmm. As a consolation prize, I decided to finally order the Blu-ray set of Series series 12. Um, Hmm. And ironically enough, the next day I woke up and looked on Argos.com and two towns away from me, they had a copy of Season 24. So I dashed on the bus and got it. Um, So that's nice to know that story had a happy ending, right? Um, Yeah. But Series 12 arrived and I've watched it through and... I'm going to say something that people won't like. I don't think there's a weak episode. I think there are several, like, absolute classics in it. I think Spyfall, I think Fugitive of the Jadoon and The Haunting of Villa Diodati are absolute bangers. And I think everything else is either good or very good. And I think I enjoyed The Timeless Children more this time as well. Like, as a piece mm. of drama... Joe, we're not relitigating the timeless children again. I can't put myself through that again. I like in that episode, right, the fact that they show Gallifrey being built, you know, the Citadel being built in that kind of fabulous sequence. And at the end, they blow the shit out of it. So you basically see the whole Mm -hmm. of Gallifrey in one episode. Um, But by far, one of the standouts was the haunting of Villa Diodati. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing about that is it probably shouldn't be because it's a bit of a sleeper episode. I, it, it does eventually do important things, but for the first two thirds, it's like a base under siege story, isn't it? Which is like ten a penny for Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not sure I necessarily call it base under siege just because the location is so exotic. And the mystery is so strange. Uh, one of the things that I really like about the haunting. Uh, I'm just gonna. I'm, uh, Villa Diodati. I think saying the whole. This is the problem with the Chibnall era. Some is they, they have very long titles sometimes. Um, uh, but with Villa Diodati, the it has a lot of odd mysteries. It's it really in some points it really kind of remind with all the spatial loops in this kind of uh, mansion in Geneva. Uh, it's Geneva. Wait, is it Geneva or Sweden? Uh, no, Sweden's it takes you away, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Geneva. I'm going to go with Geneva until I'm corrected. Let's say that. Right, Ian, if you don't agree. Yeah. Um, I should know this. I did study the romantics. Um, but, um, yeah, but the, like, the location is, like, the, the house that they film in yeah. is so lush and beautiful. 
uh, and the mysteries that are produced, like um, obviously there's all the things with the multiple runes and a kind of the spatial loop, which kind of reminded me of the Chimes of Midnight a little bit uh, yeah. when the TARDIS kind of sets into the house. Uh, and but also all this all, all this weird stuff, all this visually really strange stuff. Like I, one of the things I really love in that first half is the hand oh bursting out of the um so out, out of the painting. Do you know the bit? Do you remember the bit where they they find the skeleton that the hand belongs to, and they're like, and mm. Yaz goes, "Oh my god, there's a hand missing," and the other one goes, "No, they're both missing," and they're all like, <gasps> "Like, like where's it gonna come yeah. from?" That's wicked. I, yeah, but I do I do take what you mean because um, it this has just come after um, it takes you uh, sorry it no not um, uh, can you hear me is That's that right? right yeah 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 um, and it's uh, and it's come after a bunch of obviously it's after Fugitive of the Dune um, uh, and another, a lot of really high high octane episodes like Praxis Praxis is in that gap as well. I wouldn't um, say this is not like fast paced. There's lots happening in this, but it is hmm. a little calmer than something like Orphan Fifty Five, which is sprinting throughout. You know, like always on the go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, but there's... I think I, I think with a story like this, because even, I wouldn't, I don't think it's a base under siege story necessarily. Although I see why you you equate it to that. It it definitely does feel like a ghost story. And definitely the kind of ghost stories the new series have done. Um, the the obvious thing to compare it with is Hyde, I suspect, um, uh, since they're both overtly ghost stories. But I see what you mean in terms of like a closed setting; they can't leave the house. Yeah, so so sort of based on the scene, um, that's what I'm talking about there, is where it is it is contained to one setting. It's a group of characters that are stuck in one setting, and literally mm-hmm. the first line of dialogue in this, which made me think of that straight away, is someone going. Um, confined again. That's the first line of dialogue. I'm like, okay, so you're pretty much setting your stall from the first line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it has the, the the kind of structural elements of a conventional base under siege. That doesn't mean it's doing the kind of Doctor Who cliches of a base under siege. I suppose. Yeah, and like you said, there's, um, there's. I found in that first half, there's just a massive sense of not understanding at all what is going on. Like, there's the weird geography of the place, which you've already mentioned, coming in, sort of leaving one room and coming back into it again. But then there's, like you said, there's the skeleton roaming around. There's ghosts that people can see. There's people being possessed. It's like every single ghost story cliche you can imagine. But they're done mm-hmm. really well. Like the scares are really well done. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the and it's the visual execution of it is phenomenally good. Um, uh, the direction, especially the the light, like the lighting, is part of what Super you get in the in the slower build up at that beginning. Is that it? Is, I think Villa Diodati's gets to spend a lot of time setting the tone yeah. of the episode and really building, uh, creating that atmosphere. Uh, like you, I know there are some people. I don't think entirely unrightly who kind of go, yeah, you know, visually, Series 7, it's a lot of oranges and blues. There's a lot of that on the camera. But here, 
that vision is really striking because you've got these like dark corners with flashes of blue lightning and these kind of dim candle lights oh, the, the, with these the, red you know the, the the oldest cliche in the book is the lightning storm and it's done so brilliantly here yeah but one of the wonderful things is that you know they do the lightning thing and it's quite as atmospheric but you do it's in that pre-credit teaser where um you know um by lord byron is going let's tell um stories of the dead and you see the butler fletcher in the oh, background kind of rolling his eyes we need to pause oh, i think he calls himself the valet doesn't he yeah the valet yeah that guy in every scene he's just like rolling his eyes to the heavens unimpressed by everything that's going on i didn't want him to die i thought he was a great no. character he gets he gets quite a grisly end yeah, as yeah, well yeah. Um, which is where the horror comes in, but definitely in that first, the first, the beginning of Diodati, there's the tone is really. You get a lot of different tones in the story, but they, yeah. it balances them quite well. At the beginning, you've got the kind of, obviously, there's a lot of they're setting up the horror and the mystery, but they balance it out with a lot of comedy, a lot of really good comedy, very a lot very of good. Stuff. Yeah, I thought, I, uh, and, like, can you think of anything more economic than that? dance scene where yeah like like to be able to get that that was russell t davis good that was like russell t. davis had a way do you remember the, the the scene at the beginning of smith and jones where um we're introduced to martha's family and you just get snippets of darla with her talking to everybody and you get a real sense of who everyone is that dancing mm. is doing exactly that but with like brilliant dialogue like and it's just people gossiping during a dance and it just yeah. sets out who everybody is what their relationships are what the problems are within this group i just thought that was genius yeah yeah or oh, like structurally it's 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 a fantastic way of getting around a lot of historical exposition um uh because you know in that scene um it's kind of explaining what do we learn we learn that the shelleys aren't properly married mm -hmm. uh we learn byron is in exile and um is separated from his wife and it's one of the things i sometimes take issue with in the whitaker era is that sometimes there are just long scenes of jody whitaker just explaining stuff and listing things and you know doctor who does that all the time but he but they get a, but they get away with it because you know doing a dance and seeing people gossip to the companions uh is terrific and this is and that scene in particular is one where i, I think we'll talk about this later but this is one of those scenes that really showcases the um the strengths of having three companions because oh, you sure. have three yeah. companions getting different bits of gossip uh -huh. um uh, and obviously, because it's gossip, it's a, it's a lot more interesting to listen to, because you have people commenting on marriages and and separations and secret lusts and all that. And yeah, that seems lovely. Something you've criticised before in this era is kind of how forced or kind of unnatural the dialogue can seem at times. I think it, is it Maxine Alderton? Is that the name of the writer? Here? Yes, I th I think so, Maxine Alderton. I think she's got an excellent grasp of memorable like witty clever dialogue she's she's a very like and, and even chibnall script editing this or who you know doing his revisions he can't he can't penetrate that like i i throughout the dialogue is very strong and we'll talk later on about some of the confrontation scenes that happen 
but I was struck throughout that it didn't really have that clunky exposition. Um, when people were cracking jokes, it was funny jokes. Uh, most of the dialogue, it, it told you something about the character that was talking. Mm. Basically, what I'm saying is she needs to come back. They need her back. Oh, absolutely. Totally. And she gets away with it by doing one of the, the, the great obvious premises of Doctor Who, which um, is, you know, Mary Shelley and the Cybermen. And... Uh, and wrapping it up in such an excellent... It, it works on so many levels. It works as a ghost story in its own right. It works as a kind of Cyberman story as well. It, it's it's a wonderful script. Um, you know and you, you... Sorry, right at the beginning, um, I think it's got one of the best ever introductions of like, you know, it's been so many Doctor Who stories now where the regulars just trip on the scene. And the build-up to that, uh, them at the door, were like... <laughs> I yeah. love that. And I thought to myself, do you know what? The ear is really starting to relax. It's really starting to have some fun and play with cliches, mm. you know, and, and let its hair down a little bit. One thing I will say about series 11 is it's a little, I do like series 11 a lot, but it's very po-faced, you know? Yeah. And uh, worthy. Well, that's the word I hear quite a lot. It's very worthy. Whereas in series 12, I feel like they're starting to have some fun. Yeah, and you and you definitely get that. Like, obviously, they build up to the scare, and you know, and you know, this is how smart the the script is and kind of foreshadowing things. When they're going to the door, they're already talking about could it be Shelley out there who's locked in the basement? Yeah. As I, as, so they're already establishing that right from the get go, and of course, opening the doors, and they're scared. So the Doctor funny. and companions are scared. It's terrific. There's it's a, a lovely screenshot of the four regulars all screaming like lit by lightning that's out there and it's just yeah. blissful yeah i saw one i think i saw a screen um um a gif that is just that moment but just zooming in super like colin baker kind of zoom on uh jody whittaker's face <laughs> and she's like oh do you know what's kind of sad is that i really feel and i think it works in essentially the sidemen as well so you've got you've had can you hear me Diodati, and Ascension of the Cybermen. And I think they're getting to a stage where they've figured out how to give all three companions something to do. Mm -hmm. Just as they're about to split them up. You know, it's like really annoying. Yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I mentioned that earlier. One of the th great things about this script, about this episode, is that it gives each of the, the companions uh, um, something to do uh, without ever feeling interchangeable. And I, because I think you can think of like you could pull moments for each of them out of a hat, which is like Graham and the ghosts, which is really funny, or the bit where he comes in and he's like, um, "It's a truth universally acknowledged," and the doctor's like, "No, it's the wrong, wrong author." Yeah, and he's yeah, he's doing all um, oh yeah, at the very beginning where he's trying to do kind of like a Jane Austen kind of thing, um, uh, and he and he it, it like it, very reminiscent of you know. Rose doing going, I'm oot in a boot, oh, and it's like, yeah. no, don't do that. But then you've got uh, like Ryan at the piano with Shelley, I think, Mary mm -hmm. Shelley, uh, where he's doing chopsticks on the piano, and then the guy's like, we're gonna have a duel, and Ryan's there doing like these comedy punches, like, because mm. really, Ryan's a bit of a wimp. He comes across as all like, like all ballsy, but he's actually a bit of a wimp when it comes to it. Do you remember that bit in Ghost yeah. Monument where he runs away with the gun? It's like, yeah, yeah. Where's the reload? <laughs> yeah, I. But 
that's one of the things I really like about the first half is that you do get these character moments yeah. that are really, really well written. So, you, you know, uh, you've mentioned the one at the piano. One of the it's so lovely, that scene, because, you know, Ryan's just kind of fumbling with the keys because of his um, uh, his, dyspra his dyspraxia. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, obviously he can't play. And there's a lovely moment of um, uh, Mary Shelley kind of going, oh, you know, um, I, I, I won't ever be as great as a writer as my parents. And, you know, uh, there's without overstating it, linking it, but not overstating it. Ryan says it's like, you know, you just it's like, you know, Manan always said you just got to keep be persistent and you just got to keep trying to meet the challenge, which is so nice. Well, it kind of and loops it, back to him on the bike, doesn't it? In the very first yeah, time. exactly. Exactly. So it's this nice thing where it's nothing quite as crass as Ryan inspiring Melly, Mary Shelley to write. Um, which would be but it is, awful, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, it would be awful. But it is a nice little moment of two characters who have these insecurities kind of confiding in, in each other and kind of encouraging each other, which is lovely. And similarly, oh, sorry, I it looks like you're about to say something. Well, no, I was going to say, then, because uh, I said something about Graham, I said something about Ryan, then there's the scene with Yaz on the staircase uh, where mm. she's talking about the dog. Now, do you remember when we were talking about this, when it was airing, I was still convinced that Yaz was working for the master. And that she was, oh, yeah. I know she was talking about the master, but clearly that was not the case, <clears> unless there's supposed to be a massive twist in series 13. Um, but she's talking about the doctor, and she's basically saying how she feels about the doctor. She says she just says my person, which makes it a bit weird. But it's uh, it's heading in that direction that we get to in um, Revolution of the Daleks, where she's clearly got a lot of affection for the Thirteenth Doctor. Um, mm -hmm. So there was there was hints of that as well. And yeah, like you said, but but at the same time, there's lots of creepy stuff happening you know and and the plot's yeah. moving and the doctor at the now the doctor in the first half of this episode i think she's she's like stunningly good in the second half of the episode but in the she's grabbing hold of every mystery and trying to put it together and at the same time uh -huh. she's trying to uh, avoid the, the advances of byron who keeps coming mm. at her they haven't done that before. They haven't put her in a situation where she's been sexualized like that by somebody. And I thought that was very nicely done. Yeah. Um, and just, I'm, I'll get back to that in just one second. I just wanted to add something about the, the scene with Yaz okay. very quickly. Uh, but I'll circle back around to Byron in just a sec. Uh, one thing I really like about the, the scene on the staircase, or outside the room, is that um, it's, it's a scene that comes about from Yaz's experience as a police officer. Because when they're in the room, she's the one who notices that she's going off with, she because she, she picks up a knife, she picks up a flint and she walks out of the room. And and I was just like, and I, I was watching, I was like, it's a small detail, but of course, you know, a trained police officer is gonna notice someone picking up a knife and then leaving the room discreetly. And of course, she's gonna want to investigate that. And of course, when she then turns up um, uh, and sees her kind of like trying to grapple the door open, uh, she she's and she's like, oh, she's like, you know, breaking and entering—that's worse. Yeah. Um, so I so one so even though she she never does anything like say hey I'm a trained policewoman what are you doing um it's still a detail that comes from her 
from her background and from her experience, which I think is just a very, it's not overstated, but it's very attentive writing. I noticed, um, watching through series 12 in the last couple of weeks, I noticed that the argument that suggests that Yaz does not um, show competency as a, a policeman in training, in fact, there was a moment, uh, several moments in every single episode where that was brought in. I think that's something when people go and watch her run that is undervalued and underappreciated. Mm. Um, and that's just a really um, small example, but, you know, a, quite a vivid one. Yeah. But circling back to what you were diving back into there, which is, you know, the Doctor being kind of pursued by um, Lord Byron, which what, is what, what terrific. Have we what have we had before? We've had King James just mentioning her gender, haven't we, in The Witchfinders? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, go and do idle gossip or something that your genders yeah. are so good at. Uh, of, no, of nosy busybodies <laughs> gossip. And it is funny, and her reaction is really funny, but they really haven't pushed into her gender much, have they? No, which I think is, on the whole, has been very prudent uh, and probably the best choice. Um, but no, here, it, it, I mean, obviously... Part of what for me made the Byron thing uh, so so much fun was a obviously seeing Lord Byron kind of be kind of being kicked and put in his place a little bit um, is terrific fun for this like arrogant this famous man of history this arrogant man but it's also um, really nice because um, oh I lost my thought. Um, <laughs> I'll get I'll get it once we resume. Uh, Shall we cut off there? Yeah, hang on. I got it. Yes, we're back. Um, uh, yeah. So one of the delightful things about that dynamic is that obviously you get the Doctor kind of being unimpressed and kind of putting By- Lord Byron in his place as he tries to pursue her and does this whole kind of, she's the most uh, bemusing creature I've ever laid eyes on and her being unimpressed by it. But it's also a lot of fun, I think specifically for 13th Doctor, because I think with a lot of, quite a few historical figures she's met up to this point of, you know, like the great figures from history, like, you know, Rosa Parks and Thomas Edison, um and a couple of others um who does she meet in spyfall oh uh ada lovelace and yes um khan oh good grief i should know this i can't remember the woman's name uh someone khan sorry (laughs) yes that's right um but she's met a lot of very impressive historical figures today and with the 13th doctor she does have she's usually quite breathless and excited when she's meeting them. And she's usually quite a big fan of yeah. m- many of the the big guest historical figures we're encountering. Obviously not, not a big fan of like, you know, Thomas Edison and stuff like that. But what's really nice here is that she meets one of the great English writers uh, and she basically gets to be a bit unimpressed by him. 
despite and despite the fact that he is a great writer and everybody's like oh he's so great and it's really lovely for this doctor in particular who as who is very over enthusiastic when meeting historical figures to be kind of um, um, oh that, that what what's it she says that third canto of yours bit long isn't it i love you but I love what your daughter does. I swear there was a line that was deliberately directed at the Not My Doctor Brigade where he calls her Mrs. Doctor and she just gives him a withering look and she goes, just Doctor will do. And I was like, yeah. go on, girl. But she, um, okay, whatever it is, you know, we've talked about like lightning in a bottle before. Yeah, whatever it is, that that doctorishness, that, that charisma, that you want to look at them even when what's going on on the screen isn't that great which is not the case here she just has got it at this point she's commanding she's in charge here she's funny i thought she was brilliant in this episode like i think this is one of her standout episodes oh no i i definitely think it's one of those uh because you know i i sometimes i i'm I don't think Whitaker is without commanding performances throughout her run, um, but I think this is one of her definitely, if not her, if not her most, but definitely one of her most well-rounded performances. Yeah. Um, well, you know, she gets to she gets she, to be very funny, doesn't she? But she gets a big dramatic scene as well. Mm-hmm. She gets to do the kind of commanding, authoritative. <laughs> shtick that you know we you know we love seeing in like actors like Eccleston, Capaldi, Tennant and Smith she gets one of those big moments here as well when she kind of lambasts the kind of structure of her of this family that she's she takes with her. I just love uh, the, but... the way she basically says to Ryan do you know what why don't you fuck off all right I'm mm-hmm. gonna make a tough choice here. She's savage with them isn't she like like this is you know they they will say this is like the fluffy wuffy doctor like capaldi i can't remember being much more savage than this in his time like she really goes at them and says tough choices need to be made you're not the one that's going to make them i am so shut up mm. <laughs> it's great well, i think yeah well i think part of what makes that moment so savory is that for by and large for the majority of two seasons is she has been a very codependent fellow in a good way and a bad way she's been a very codependent doctor um uh she's uh, she's been consciously written as someone who really loves being with people and really loves being and really loves having it working in a team um uh so she has kind of been this kind of really friendly doctor this obviously with moments here and there where she kind of steps up um, particularly in series 12, I think we both agreed. Um, but here it's really kind of the Very moment where she's... Isn't it? And at the end of this, she says, look, I'm going to a cyber war zone. You don't have to come with me, but I'm mm. going to go and do this. You know, it, it's not going to be safe. So she's, Although... she's kind of really stepping up now, isn't she? And basically saying, yeah, it's, it's less about them as a family and it's more about the doctor. And I think that's what people want. You know, that's why mm. some people have objected because it has become more of this sort of ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, you know, you mentioned that final TARDIS scene, but she, it, it, you know, she has her, all, 
that the part of what makes that scene do not feel that the moment where she says, you know, it's um, what she, what does she say? It's it's not um a, a flat. It's um. Uh, what, what's the word she uses? Mountainous with me at the summit, I think is what she says. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I really yeah, like, I, she, I, I forget. she says, doesn't she, like, um, when she spells out the decisions that she could make and how it could mm. all go terribly wrong. Yeah, but part of what makes that work for her doctor, because this isn't standard behaviour, is that you really get the sense that she's been pushed quite to the edge when she's confronted with this. Um, because, you know, when she gets back to the TARDIS later, it's not that she's underplaying the seriousness of the situation, but she does, again, as she's always done, she frames it as a choice. Yeah. She says, you don't have to come with me, which is what she did in series 11 as well, yeah. where she's like, um, uh, you know, in at the end of Arachnids in the UK, where she's like, you know, if you want to step off now, you can, or you can come with me, but no, that you, things will, it's, it's, it's a kind of a repeat of that scene, but the stakes are a lot higher. Whereas the first time it's like, you know, if you're, if you're not enjoying having the adventure, then you no longer have to have the adventure. Whereas the choice here is we've been having adventures, but now we're going into real danger. Yeah. And that choice is yours. And what I really like is, because I watched on to Ascension of the Cybermen, is that Chippel doesn't forget that. And whatever you think of those cyber drones, yeah, they are in danger. And it's played as like a panic-stricken scene, as like an action scene where they could die. And they're running to spaceships. So it is like, you know, she gives them the offer to walk away. They choose not to, and they nearly lose their lives, you know. So it's not like it's not like mm. she's, she's overplaying, like, the dangers. Mm -hmm. like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, okay, I need to ask you one question. Mm -hmm. oh, do you love the fact and that is that question is the question should Jodie Whittaker wear a waistcoat more often? Because yes, she should. Oh, she look great. I think every time she goes into like period costume. Oh, oh, oh I loved her in the tuxedo in Spyfall as well. Maybe mm -hmm. I just well, I don't. Mm, it's dreadful to say this, but I I like it whenever she's kind of androgynous looking, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and and that's not me saying I want her to look like a man. Um, I just think it's a quirky look, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. No, my question is, do you like the fact that there was a mystery they didn't solve? The two ghosts. The yeah. Grandices? That's one of the, it's one of the, see, it's one of those things that's really lovely about this story. It's like, obvious, it's, it's very Doctor who in that it's a mashup. It mashes up a lot of different things. It mashes up the Cyberman with a ghost story with Mary Shelley um and also uh so yeah it's doing the fun kind of genre mashup stuff that doctor who is particularly well equipped for um and it's lovely that they have a little unresolved mystery at the end which is very doctor who to kind of go you know ghosts don't exist right but maybe they do i want to have the doctor saying that after all the fuss the doctor's made in the classic series about ghosts not being real i thought that was so cheeky uh, just say, well, yeah. or are they? And <laughs> she gets in the yeah. TARDIS. I really yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Have you read many of the BBC Eighth Doctor books? Um, not really, no. Because this had more than a touch of the Banquo legacy about it. That's, okay. So that's a book that came in the first half of the Ape Doctor Adventures, right before the Ancestor Cell, where they blew up Gallifrey. Okay. 
and the Banquo legacy starts it's set in a house it's a murder mystery it's set mm-hmm. in in the recent past um with a byronesque doctor uh and then halfway through the story sci-fi elements start coming in and it's a massive arc shift game changer but the first mm-hmm. half of the story is like um is like a, a period piece murder mystery a bit like this you know it's a bit similar in tone to this um and then the the, the shift to i think in that one it's uh, one of the guests is a time lord and they've been trying to get the doctor back to gallifrey whereas in this obviously it's a cyberman and we're going off into the cyber wars I just mm-hmm. found that really interesting that the, the the setting, the tone, the atmosphere of the two stories is quite similar. And the fact that they start off telling one kind of story and then shifting into something much bigger. Uh, I don't know if that was entirely a coincidence or not, because I know with the new series, there have been a lot of touches of both the new adventures and the eighth Doctor adventures about them. Mm-hmm. I, I reckon that's probably unless chris chibnall read the book uh, which is entirely possible i'm not sure i reckon that's probably more of a coincidence because i think because you know obviously when the show came back a lot of the writers had were if were if not if they weren't involved in the wilderness years like you know paul Cannell, mark gatiss um rob Sherman, then they were consumers of it um but i think by the time of you know series eight you know jamie matheson was saying i'd never really watched the old show i never read the stuff in the wilderness years and i i think that probably extends to chibnall's writing room as well i reckon they're a lot of them are very fresh-faced um but the only reason i made the parallel is because it kind of starts they both kind of start off fairly inoffensively and then when the Cyberman hits in this and when the Time Lord hits in the bank, there's like this sense of dread that this very inoffensive story is really important and serious shit is going down now. Um, and they kind of do it at the same point <clears throat> in the story as well. Could be a coincidence, but I, I definitely mm. noticed it. I um, And it is, it's fascinating that and i think you know when it shifts in gear it's almost exactly bang on dead in the middle of the story when the cyberman actually arrives it's the right Um, point isn't it it felt like we need a new element here and it hits mm. the right point and it makes i found in i love future of the dune but i found that whole beware the lone cyberman you know like it was all a bit clunky Mm. but without that that we wouldn't know about the the importance of the Cyberman coming, you know, in this. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, like, um, I think one of the nice things that this story does is, you know, obviously the story they're telling is, and, uh, you know, they did this in, what was it called? The Silver Turk um, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Is, is, is Mary Shelley meeting the Cyberman and obviously a parallel being drawn between the Cyberman and Frankenstein's monster and the book Frankenstein. It's um, incredibly good as well. Like, um, if you liked <laughs> this, I would say go find the Silver Turk from the Mary Shelley trilogy of the Age Doctor Adventure and Big Finish. It's extremely, it's Mark Plan. Yeah. It's excellent. Yeah, no idea how we reconcile those two stories together, but who cares? Well, Jubilee um, and Dalek, you know, like, it's happened before, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, human nature and human nature. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, try to get your head around that one. Um, but, um, yeah, so obviously the story they're telling is, at, at its core, if you're like reducing it to its like bare bones premise, is Mary Shelley meets the Cybermen. Um, yeah. But one of the nice things about this story is is that in the first half, it's not like we're seeing it gets to be weird in its own unique way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like you see, it's, you know, you see a skeleton hand scurrying around. You don't see a cybermat scurrying, scurrying around, which kind of, which is in many ways more delightful because, it, you know, you're kind of going, okay, so this doesn't seem to be related to the Cybermen. Like all this weird, like these space loops and these kind of animated hands and skeletons. So what the hell's it got to do with all this stuff? So you have no clue until the Cyberman appears that a Cyberman's going to be in this. And that's mm-hmm. what makes that twist so good. Mm, absolutely. What makes it even better is, oh, I'm going to be possibly contentious now, that is the best designed Cyberman in the new series. Like, it is fucking ghoulish to look at. Mm. The, 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 the half face that's all scarred, I love the fact that you can see the face. It's finally, they're going down this route of, of showing like the remains of somebody under the mask. Because I've mm. always said they don't do the body horror of the Cybermen enough. And even one step better, they have the, like, the emotion chip not in yet. So he's vicious he's nasty yeah he's literally falling apart and and to top it all off it's a terrific performance like a very memorable mm. performance yeah it's um I'm just, I'm just getting the cast list up now <clears throat> i know you uh, love you you and i do too um world enough of time and the doctor falls for me i think the the double bill of this and essentially the cybermen it, they are better cyberman stories i think this for me is peak cyberman for Doctor. i i i think world enough in time and, and doctor falls are better um but i definitely think Certainly, at least this. I, I I think I was a bit kind of eh about Ascension of the Cybermen, but certainly this is definitely one of the best Cybermen stories. And yeah, the performance that Patrick, I think it's Patrick O'Kane who's playing a shard. Right. Um. Uh. His performance is truly ghoulish and horrible and terrific. I think I remember when I first watched this. I with the design at least. I kind of. I remember thinking this is pretty good. I wish they'd gone further in like disfiguring his face with like cyber implants or something. But now having kind of on the rewatch, I was like, no, 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 no. You don't need to do anything with this design. It's perfectly horrible as it is. And I think, I think if, if you were to, the, the, the parallel I think if you were to, to make it more terrifying, you probably have to take it off the air and put it in torchwood. Well, there, there are moments in this where I'm like, that's as far as you can go. Um, the the bit the suspense with the scene where he picks up the baby, I the first time I watched that I was just holding my breath the whole time like that they, they're not they're not gonna have him kill a baby like surely not, um, mm. but the fact that I was asking the question meant they were taking they were shooting that scene like well enough for me to think that perhaps they would. Well, and it's not unreasonable. We have literally, because you know, the the baby's in, being is with the sort of maid in that trunk, and we see we don't see it, but we see him grab her, and obviously we then have that shot of him like moving his, twisting his arm, and clearly breaking her neck. 
So we have just seen a Cyberman just brutally murder someone. Two people now. Poor Fletcher. And he died too young. Oh, Fletcher. The valet. But then you have that awesome scene where Jodie Whittaker's just sitting in like the drawing room and baiting this Cyberman. And she's brilliant in that scene. He's brilliant in that scene. Anyone who says that there's no confrontation scenes for Jodie Whittaker, go watch that scene. It's as good as any of the other Doctors in the new series. It's yeah. excellent. But what top, the, the best scene in the entire story is the moment where Shelley tries to reach out to the Cyberman and, and say, you know, you were a father once, you loved your children, and you think in a moment of agonising, like, Moffat love conquers all, that this Cyberman's going to go, oh, yeah, because you know, he's still got his emotions, oh, my lovely children. And then he just turns around and says, and I snap their necks because they were weak. And I, yeah. it, it's... it's um stunningly well played like it's seriously well acted that scene and well written um mm. and i and i you know you know when you kind of sit back at, at the sort of the raw emotion of a scene i i thought that scene was just brilliant mm, yeah and <clears throat> i yeah and it obviously uh, yeah it's, uh, you you kind of see from a mile off that they were they were gonna do that little scene that they were going to do. No, 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 no. You're not entirely a Cyberman. You can be saved. You're still a man. Um, which I, I think I remember at the time I was going, this, okay, that fine if you have to. But then when he kind of goes, you know, I willingly gave myself to the Cybermen. Um, and I, and you're like, I spared your child because he was sick and weak. Uh, you're just like, oh shit. Okay. Um, maybe this ending isn't going to be as neat as we thought it was. And and for the character to say, "I murdered my own children," like that's mm. that is pretty strong for Doctor Who. Yeah. Well, it it, <clears throat> it builds up to that point terrifically as well because you obviously, I mean, you if you're in a haunted house, obviously if if there's somebody missing, you've obviously got to go into the cellar. Yeah. Um And um, well, the cellar yeah. or the attic. One or the other, you know, there yeah, is one, one or the two. You're either going upstairs or downstairs. Don't go up There's or don't go down. Yeah. Um, and Doctor Who will all, I think, will probably go for the basement more often than the ceiling. Yeah. Um, uh, and like, you know, you have the spooky room, Shelley's spooky room with all the writing all over the wall. Um, so, you know, even though the kind of sci fi element of a shard and the Cybermen is dropped into the story, it's not like there's a gear change where, okay, we're no longer doing horror. We're now doing science fiction. Um, in fact, they, if anything, they ramp up the horror even more. <clears throat> which um, has happened before. And I think generally when it happens, it's quite, you remember Stones of Blood, which starts off as like a gothic horror and then twists mm -hmm. into outright like sci-fi comedy or even Hyde, which I think has some really effective creepy moments and then mm -hmm. becomes that bizarre love story between those two mutants, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas, you're right, like, the Cyberman's introduced, but he's basically played as Frankenstein, isn't he? Rather than a Cyberman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Frankenstein's monster. I need to get that right. I was, 
yeah i was i was like do i do i say it yeah, do i be that person probably, do i be that really that. annoying person actually joe <laughs> i think you'll i think you'll find he's called frankenstein's monster he it says that on page 100 and but it just it refuses to cut the mood you know it's gonna it's mm-hmm. gonna be atmospheric to the last this story yeah and i think the story realizes that if you're gonna go with the damaged cybermen then you can't turn it into a sci-fi thing um if anything you've got to double down on it because you you've created such a one of the things that makes this uh, makes Ashad the Cyberman so effective in the story is that he is even though he's a science fiction image um he is a sight as grisly and weird as anything else in this story yeah um so even though he's like half man half machine that kind of thing the look of him is so ghoulish that it still feels like it belongs in the world of you know sentient skeleton hands running around um being crushed by trays um so, so it's one of the one of it's one of those things where it, it's like mummy on the orient express in that sense of like you know you've got all these kind of slightly disparate elements but they feed it into each other so well that they it results in a story that's great and uh a visual storytelling that's equally compelling and you might say um, that like like showing the human flesh underneath having him have emotions kind of takes away from him being a cyberman well newsflash the cybermen are pretty boring i hate to say this mm. but throughout doctor who there are clumpy robots that stomp around being you know pretty dull this cyberman is super scary unpredictable violent and angry and that's just a great villain <clears throat> you know mm. Yeah, 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 and it in some ways I don't I'm not sure I doubt it's direct, but it certainly evokes just the look of him. Just evokes re- reminded me a little bit of you know Danny Pink as a Cyberman once he takes the face mask off, but definitely kind of going let's kind of get rid of the mawkishness a little bit and the emotion emotional goopy stuff yeah. let's take to... the design sorry let's take the design a bit further let's take the the horror of seeing someone in the in these suits a, a little bit further and let's also do the whole thing where because like danny pink you know the emotional chip isn't quite installed properly or whatever sci-fi reason it is it's the same thing with danny but they kind of go what if this person is in fact just is even worse uh if, if he's even more dangerous and even worse as a cyberman if he doesn't have his chip installed if he is in fact a s- psychopath essentially well and ashad is like he admits that he was wasn't he, he was a dreadful person before he became a cyberman and that's kind mm-hmm. of the difference there and they haven't completed the conversion also as mm. well with danny pink i find it very hard to tell the difference between his performance when he was a human being and when he was a cyberman you know with his emotions taken out so yeah mm. there's that as well sorry to be naughty but yeah. it's pretty flat right i yeah uh well we i don't think yeah 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 but not necessarily yeah <laughs> uh, um but you know but, what um, right i recently did a commentary on dark water and death in heaven okay and i had took great exception to doctor who daring to suggest that um when people die uh and they're being cremated they're they're still aware and and screaming in pain 
<clears throat> did you do you mean dark water? I do. Yeah. Oh, so what did I say? I thought you said heaven sent, but maybe I misheard. Oh, okay. No. So it's dark water and death in heaven. I said that's a step too far. Oh, yeah, yeah. You did say that. I just, I was, yeah. Anyway, continue. So yeah, I said that that premise is a step too far. It's too ghoulish. It's too nasty for Doctor Who. And then the idea of turning every corpse on planet Earth into a Cyberman in the next story, and then essentially blowing them all up or whatever happens to them at the end. That's a step too far as well. Now, it may feel like I've got double standards to say that actually a character in this admitting that he's murdered his own children and, um, you know, in a particularly vicious scene. I don't know why it, it just doesn't bother me as much. Now, I'm not advocating for infanticide uh, because, you know, I had huge objections for that in A Good Man Goes to War. Yeah, I believe you felt very hard on the line of let's not kill babies. Let's not kill babies, no. And I'm not saying we should kill children either. That's appalling. <laughs> um, there's just something about how it's done here that I don't find it as objectionable. But I wanted to bring it up because I do basically have double standards. Because a character saying that he snapped the necks of his children, that is probably a bit much for the audience that Doctor Who generally is trying to reach. Um, mm -hmm. Don't you think? Um, yeah, I would say so. Um, and I think I agree. I think it gets away with it. Um, I mean, in just, a good man goes to war, it shows you the the, the baby being killed, and that's well. That's I, th I, I think that's probably yeah. I think that's probably part of it, which is that even though it's still a really graphic thing to think about, it's not like we see him kill his wife. It's not like because you know that would be um, uh, Frobisher, uh, not Frobisher the penguin, uh, John Frobisher from Torchwood. You know when he goes into his in oh, and with the gun. Yeah. Oh my word, that scene is so. Bad. Yeah, yeah. So if I think the different, the key difference is, is that even though he says it. Um, we don't, obviously, for obvious reasons, we don't see it, which is whereas, I suppose, with um, uh, Dark Water, Death in Heaven, and I suppose A Good Man Goes to War, is that we see that. We see people crawling out of the graves of planet Earth. We then see, we hear people say, you know, that person on the recording going, don't cremate me. Oh, um, um, so I think the difference is, is that, even though, you know, what Moffat is doing there is successful for horror, it's too, it's, it's hor too horrifying for Doctor Who. I Whereas think, here, I think, like, it's kind of like, it's... As a, as a member of the audience, yeah, I think, like, I've never murdered any children, and I don't plan to do it, um, and it's not happened Okay, to cool, any... glad we got that on record. <laughs> it's not happened to anyone in my life, so it's something that I'm aware has happened, you know, before, but it's it doesn't personally affect me, whereas... Uh, when I watched Dark Water and Death in Heaven, my mum died and was cremated. So in order for me to buy into that story, I've got to accept that when we cremated her, she was screaming, no, Joe, no, don't do it. And that, that's a step too far for me. So maybe maybe the fact that I can accept this and not that is because it doesn't kind of like, it, it doesn't fall within my experience. Mm. And it's, you know, I think part of it is that it's not essential to the premise that's, of yeah, the episode. That's true. Yeah, whereas in Dark Water, the whole um, thing is built around this really ghoulish concept. And the same thing with um, Death in Heaven. Um, 
uh, where, you know, it's all about people climbing out of their graves and a good man goes to war. That is kind of the climactic moment in an episode, which is which is the whole point of the episode is built around getting Amy and her child back. Yeah, uh, that's the that's the center of it. Whereas here it's it's a detail of a character as opposed to the core of the premise. That's, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And it, it's terribly effectively done, but it is skipped over very quickly in um, mm. A Good Man Goes to War. The, my biggest objection to that is then you cut to Amy's reaction and you watch a woman like fall to pieces and have her heart broken. And it's just, it's like torture porn. It's horrendous. It's horrible viewing. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas here it's a throwaway line. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's definitely an element of it as well. Yeah. Jack, sorry, and that's... So, Jack, I've got a question for you then. Uh, and it's about linking the Chibnall era to the Stephen Moffat era, which really he shied away from, hasn't he? Like Chibnall has kind mm-hmm. of carved his own. I'd say he's lent more on Rusty Davis over the last two seasons than Moffat mm-hmm. stuff. So, like, you know, I he, think, I, sorry. Oh, I think we're, he might be signaling a change in that. Because, you know, um, the silence and the weeping angels appearing in Resolution of the Daleks. So who knows? But yes, for by and large, you're correct. Um, and uh, yeah, like, like you know, obviously they wrote out unit in Resolution. Uh, yes, that's right. What they could have done was bring in Kate Stewart and had all of that. Although I think that might be coming. But anyway. Um, but there was a couple of lines in this that directly linked this story and Jodie Whittaker says in in the special features it, it they they talked about it in the read through and it was absolutely oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. doctor referencing bill from world enough of time when she says i refuse to lose anybody else to the cybermen and i thought that was really nicely done yeah um obviously like obviously that's in the subtext of the story um and, you know, you, that's what you would likely link it to is because, you know, um, Bill being turned into a Cyberman is probably what is definitely I'm, I, I can't I, I can't immediately think of what a more grisly, gruesome fate a companion has met than being cyber converted. Um, that shot when she shot that dares to travel down her body and look through the hole that's in her. I mean, honestly. <laughs> I'm not convinced Moffat lies his companions at all. Do you know? <laughs> I, I, well, yeah. Well, what does he do? He shoots them. He kills, throws them off buildings. He murders um, their children. He murders them yeah. in you know, rebel flesh. Fake Amy gets murdered, doesn't she? Uh, we're going to be relitigating that one forever, it so, seems. Well, sorry, um, um, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously not something they draw attention to. And you can obviously read that a lot of ways. If yeah. you can also read Adric. that as, you know, Adric, okay. obviously as well. Um, and it obviously, it, it's better. It's better that we just leave it as this powerful moment of the doctor saying, I will not let this to happen to anyone else and let that moment stand as it is rather than going into a speech about, you know, I was on a spaceship heading towards a black hole and my best friend um, without getting into all that kind of stuff. But it's one of the things that, you know, I get, as I was kind of saying earlier, it makes this script so rich yeah. because 
um, as we said, you know, with the with Graham, Yaz, and Ryan, um, there are scenes that are drawn from their backgrounds and, and from their experiences in how they interact with people in the story. And similarly, the doctors, and is and, and like I said, it's not they don't underline it in, with a felt tip pen, yeah. but it's there if you're attentive. I would have and liked her same... to say Bill explicitly. I would just her name. Not not to, to give all the details, I would have liked for there to be an explicit reference to Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. But it does it, it does make you think back, and it does give a real justification as to why the Doctor's got, su- you know, in such a mardy mood in this. Like, she's, she's got a real cob on. She's bloody furious, because the last time she met the Cybermen, her best friend was effectively murdered, you know, by them. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh... Uh, in some ways, um, maybe thank goodness. I, can't, I, I you probably won't believe uh, your ears when you hear this. Maybe thank God for twice upon a time, because at least for um, yeah. at least uh, at least Peter Capaldi kind of realised that a version of her is still alive, and he got to say his goodbyes. Otherwise, the Doctor would have just his last memory is Cyberville being blown up. So she would have just probably blown the whole house up when a shard yeah. turned up. <laughs> Um, set thank, it on fire with lightning. Thank God for twice upon a time. Jesus, be careful yeah. what you say, all right? Well, it did give us Jodie Whittaker. There you go. What you need is a jolly good smack bottom, Jack. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, let's, what's it Peter Capaldi says? Uh, let's pretend nobody said that, or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, um, I have another question for you. Uh-huh. So this is the first of what's effectively a three-part finale isn't it so you have this that goes yes. into essentially the sidemen which goes into the timeless children Do yeah you, what's your preference do you prefer a single finale like the wedding of river song a two-part finale like uh one enough time and dr falls or a three-part finale like utopia sound of drums Last of the Time Lords or hmm. the Adati, essentially the Side Men, the Timeless Children. That's a, that's a what a good question. Um, Thank you. Uh, um, Your smack bottom will be <laughs> I think, generally speaking, I'm fine with two part stories. I think. Most of the time you can convey a finale in two episodes, but I I think, you know, because I actually quite like series nine because there are three series which have three part finales, I'd say. I'd say Uh, four, actually. I'd say four because I'd say turn left. Oh, turn left. Yeah. So four. Yeah. Um, So obviously you've got um, series three, which has utopia. and starting in Utopia, you then have Series 4, which starts in Turn Left. And then you have Series 9, which starts with um, Face the Raven. Um, uh, so I, I I don't know, but I do quite like the idea that the third episode, um, the first of three episodes, the, 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 hook, the hook for the finale begins there um it's i all, do i do like that a lot it's weird isn't it because with with the three part finales all of them i think every episode of the three is completely different 
Uh, Utopia, yeah. Sound of Drums, Last of the Time Lords, three very different episodes. Turn Left, Stolen Earth, Journey's End, three very different episodes. Um, maybe maybe Stolen Earth, Journey, then not so much. Um, Face the Raven, Heaven Sent, and Hell Bent, Jesus Christ, three very different episodes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and definitely here as well. I feel like you've got three very different tones. Yeah. What, what, one of the things I think I like about that particular setup of three episodes is that it, I think it, in some ways it gives the finale a bit more urgency in some ways because what you get in that first episode is the finale intruding into a normal episode of Doctor Who um, uh, as opposed to you get to the end of episode 10 or episode 11 or episode 12 and then you, you're like, okay, now we're going into the finale. Whereas, you know, in those four seasons, it's kind of like, oh, shit, the finale has crept up on us and it's happening now. Well, it also um, it gives this new series a chance to do some kind of long form storytelling as well, because it's effectively like three <laughs> hours long, isn't it? Like most mm-hmm. of, and most of in these three bars, there's an hour long episode, I think, in each one somewhere. Um, so, yeah. So so it's Doctor Who essentially doing like an old fashioned six parter, um, yeah. but chopping it up into like three two-parters that are, that are very different in tone so it's kind of more palatable yeah and one of the things i think you get with uh oh sorry i felt like i interrupted you but i'll say this very quickly um is one of the things i think you get with the three-part structure is i think with all of the cliffhangers um uh of those four seasons i think you've kind of set up i think each one broadly speaking sets up it, so sometimes they set up the scenario a little bit it, to some extent, but what they're doing going into the first part of the explicit two-part finale um, is um, setting up a character or, or setting up a particular character problem. So, you know, um, uh, Utopia sets up that it's the master we're going to be dealing with in the next two stories. Um, Journey uh, Turn Left sets up that Rose is coming back. Um, Heaven sent, sorry, um, Face the Raven sets up Clara's that, death. Um, Clara's death, yeah, Clara's death yeah. which is the impetus for Heaven sent and Hell Bent. And similarly here, um, uh, Haunting of Villa Diodati sets up the whole concept of a shard, this kind of rogue Cyberman. And the um, Siberium and, and, you know, that, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Knowledge. So yeah. the, the Siberium is kind of kind of the situational setup, but the thing is really setting up is kind of a shard as this villain that's going to be. So it sets up particular characters. Sometimes it sets up villains. Sometimes it sets up returning characters. Other times they'll set up, you know, regulars who are going. But they they're usually character things, which I quite like. I want to ask you something really fanish. Now we're on uh-huh. this topic. Okay, because I think it's entirely subjective. questions. Oh. It's, it's entirely subjective, your answer to this. But what do you think is the strongest part of those four three parts? Ooh. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do it along with you. So you go first, and then I'll say what I yeah. think. Uh, the second part, the middle part. Well, all, in, in all cases uh oh oh sorry i thought you meant generally speaking no no, no. Um, with each of those those four three-part stories uh oh it's really tough with series three i really like utopia is one of my favorite episodes like i love it so much and that cliffhanger is so good but i think 
you know, setting up the master, taking over the world, like, properly, is, uh, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm going to stick with Utopia for now, but it's very, very close. I'd probably say, I would have said Sound of Drums before, but I think revisiting, I think Utopia is just perfect. Like, yeah, it's that. It has a goal. Just... It has a goal it wants to achieve, and it just it builds and builds and builds. It's Graham Harper and his suspense again. It's just amazing. All right, what about series four? Uh, I think the stolen earth. Really, I see. You know me. I turn left. Absolutely, my favorite new series episode. So, oh, is it really? Oh God, it's oh. pure Catherine Tate. Of course, it is. <laughs> That's true. Um, I haven't rewatched Turn Left in, in a very, very long time, so maybe if I watch it, I would change my mind. I think for the moment, just having... I watched The Stolen Earth for Naimon earlier this year, so it's still quite fresh in my mind. I'm just like, this is so good. So I'm going to stick with Stolen Earth for the time being. You don't even need to answer Series 9's one, because I know that's yeah. heaven sent without fail. Yeah, yeah. Of... of, of Obviously. Although, uh, I declare the person out there to say Hellbent is the best of those three. I'm sure you're <laughs> out there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, oh trust me, there are. Um, I, I've, I think I've seen them chatting. We we meet on Tuesdays uh, at the bar. Um, uh, give us one gin and tonic and we're, all we're going is like, um, Hellbent's amazing. And then... <laughs> Uh, and then with this one, I definitely think Haunting of Villa Diodati. Okay. And that, yeah, and I, and my... I know why. You know, yeah, yeah, this definitely goes downhill for you, doesn't it? <laughs> A little, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. It, it, I could say that. Um, but I don't want to spoil anybody else's party. I, mean, I, I think um, Diodati as well, but I have Matt a huge hard-on for Ascension of the Sidemen, which is essentially like Earthshock with a massive budget. And I, I mm -hmm. feel like the direction of that and the action is just brilliant. Yeah. I, uh, I think I've got a question for you in return. Go ahead. I'm do you, what do you think? What do you? Oh, actually, I should say. What do you? What do? I, actually, um, I have two questions now. I'm going to throw your one of your yeah. questions back at you. Do you prefer two parters, one parters, or three parters? What as a finale or in general? Yeah, um, as a finale. Threes. I like the three setup. I like posing the problem, having the brilliant penultimate episode with like the humdanger, a humdinger of a cliffhanger, and then generally speaking, the disappointing finale. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'd say definitely. I think I think the worst finale of the new series is the wedding of River Song by a country mile, and it's because mm -hmm. he's got an awful lot to do and not enough time to do it. Mm. Um, fair enough. Uh, so my question to you is, um, what do you think of the? I suspect it's probably the most controversial part of the episode. Controversial. Uh, he says in highlight in quotation marks, which is the moral dilemma that the doctor has to make and the choice she makes in saving Percy Shelley, uh, as opposed to the people in the future. Because I, I think it's it's giving the NMDs everything they want, isn't it? That you know she fails basically. I I, I did I don't think about it in that regard. I just think it. I think it's the one part of the episode which really doesn't come together for me. Really? Um, I, I really uh, like that decision. No, I, I just don't... I, I, don't I, I just don't see it as a real choice. Um, 
I mean, if if the Doctor was to choose, I, I think the the Doctor's rationale for saving Percy, Percy Shelley, is a bit rubbish of just damning several billion people, billions of people in the future because some writer is influential when, you know, we all influence people all the time. I, I don't buy into that as a rationale. But really, the choice the Doctor would would, would make would surely be just to do both. Well, um, how, I'm sorry, Jack. How Spock of you, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? I mean, it, it like... Like I get why the Doctor makes the choice, and I think I think on rewatch this time, um, I think it just about squeaks away with it um, because even though the Doctor essentially says this writer is more important, uh, this writer with his flowery language in all of his books is more important than all these people who are going to be ruthlessly killed by Cybermen. I think it squeaks away with that because the Doctor is essentially going, no, I, I've i made this choice in the moment, but I am going to have it both ways. Yeah, because she says straight away afterwards, oh, shit, I fucked that up. Okay, she doesn't say quite like that. But she says, oh, you know. I'll, I'll... <laughs> Can you imagine if this ended with the Doctor going, oh, shit, I fucked that up? I mean, I write Title. balls up on that, but immediately she says, um, what is it she says? I wrote it down. Oh, they say what? She goes, right, step one is making a complete fuck up. Step two is fixing the mistakes I made in step one. Yeah. And that yeah. gives us the impetus to go into the next episode. Had she made a different call, we wouldn't have needed the last two episodes. That's true, but I... I think she knew she knew she would be able to rectify the mistake that she'd made. So so it was uh -huh. like it was like a very tense, I've got to make a choice. There's my choice. Have it. I'm coming for you. And she does. Right. Yeah, okay. I uh, <laughs> love the idea. It's like, well, I fucked that up and now we're going to go into the future and f fix the shit I fucked up. You know what we need? We need Captain Hopper from Tomb of the Cybermen to just walk in and go <sighs> Some fella's gone and balled up the lot. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, and I think, yeah, pretty much as you said, I think for me, the reason they get away with it is because it's not like, you know, we then get an episode, it's like, well, that's the choice I made. And we then have an episode where, um, you know, she goes and visits um, Agatha Christie or something. Um, I, I think it's the fact that she immediately goes, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this um, and I'm going to win is what means they is how they get, how they get away with that kind of choice. But I don't know. You've just reminded uh, me of something there, you know, you reminded me of something. So this is effectively uh celebrity historical, isn't it? Like it, it's, it's yeah. spotlighting Mary Shelley and, and Byron. And, but it doesn't go down that Rusty Davis route of, you know, like, Oh, Oh, you're Agatha Christie. Oh, you're William Shakespeare, you know, and all yeah. of that kind of like over the top. Blah, blah, blah. It integrates them into a story that makes sense, that shows how mm -hmm. they could potentially be influenced by it while still telling the story that leads into the two part finale. So it's a very deftly done celebrity historical. Yeah. And also just because the moment is so lovely. One of the things I really love is that they, you know, if it's evoking the kind of joke they do in the Shakespeare code, 
when um, it's like, oh, the most brilliant wordsmith in the world. And he goes, hey, shut your big fat mouth. <laughs> um, uh, at the very beginning, you get that moment where the, the doctor is kind of going, oh, look at these brilliant people at the, ze- at the zenith of their creativity. And they obviously go through the doors and they're all pissed drunk. Yeah, I love that scene. But I think that's the better scene. The second one you mentioned. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. The, the way they do it there is is a lot better because and you know, uh, the difference here is that you know there's another story going on beyond the hist- uh, celebrity historical, whereas you know in the Shakespeare Code it's just the celebrity historical and it's just about William Shakespeare, which is what they all tend to be about. So this is quite I don't know I think this is quite an interesting celebrity historical because it is definitely a celebrity historical. And it's so clear that um, um, Maxine, is it Maxine Ardwell? Uh, Alderton, I think. Alderton um, uh, has done, has really done her homework. Mm. And it's clear that she knows these characters, these people from history super well and where they were in their lives um, and all that kind of stuff. You, um, you know but... the fact that, that there are obviously writers, obviously writers amongst the guest cast. I love the fact that they gave um, the writer of this episode the chance to do some really like flowery dialogue, and you can get away mm. with it because they're bloody writers, and of course they're bloody pretentious is the word. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, God, if Arani turned up instead of a Shahad, what a story that would be. Oh, oh um, can I mention but, one other thing? Uh, so long as I can mention my thing first. Oh, go on. Um, <laughs> uh, I, so I think with this celebrity historical, because it is a celebrity historical, but it's a different one in kind of the same, in a, kind of reminiscent of Vincent and the Doctor, but in a very different way where it is obviously about a story about these people, but it's not about the kind of, great person of history that they are it's not like you're the writer agatha christie you're the writer william shakespeare you're winston churchill it's a it's these great writers and they happen to be people yeah. in this story that the story is telling uh-huh. as opposed to we're explicitly doing the story of um william shakespeare uh, in in doctor who and you know even the story the whole thing with the cybermen you know, being part of part of the inspiration for Frankenstein. They obviously, it's such an obvious idea that that you know, if you've already got Mary Shelley in the story, it's kind of insane not to go for that. Yeah. But they don't really make that the core of the story. So you know, in the Shakespeare Code, where there's a lot of you, you should write that down. You better write yeah. that down. And in Agatha really... Christie, it's like copyright, not a noble. Oh, and all the titles yeah. of the story or, of, the, of the Agatha Christie novels are in the dialogue, aren't they? Mm. It's, it's a parody um, of the character, I think, in the Rusty Davis' time. Yeah. Whereas this is a drama yeah. featuring those characters. Yeah. And I think it's, and obviously, particularly in uh, Unicorn and the Watts, that is terrifically fun. Mm. Um, but it, it, in some ways, it's a bit nicer here seeing them do that without going, doing the kind of, uh, 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 you get it, you get it, yeah. too much. Well, I mean, think, um, of, think of Rosa and think of Tesla as well. They kind of do the same thing there. They treat them as normal people who just happen to have an impact on the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think yeah, I would, I think Rosa is a little different just because it li does literally end with you know we see actual footage of her receiving the president was it the presidential medal medal of freedom but meeting Bill Clinton essentially. Um, but there's and still so, and, not that wink wink nudge nudge feel to it, is it? Like it's so yeah. so seriously played. Mm, yeah, it's definitely a lot different. It's that Rosa is probably a bit more like mm. Vincent and the Doctor. I think whereas we, we can probably say, or I could probably say with some confidence that the Chibnall era has redefined and recaptured the historical stories i i certainly think with more efficiency than probably the the first two eras of the new series yeah and i think a lot of whitaker's most successful stories are the historicals um you know the witch finders is also really fun yeah. um demons uh, of the job is astonishingly yeah. good I, I think more than that, I think one of the great things that the era has kind of re... I'm not sure if discovered is the right word, maybe rediscovered. I'm not as across the board with my Hartnell historical, so you might be able to comment on this better. But I think the Chibnall era has actually been quite successful in showing the versatility of the historical. Absolutely, um, yeah. So it's able to show off that you can do different things. It, like, it doesn't have to be, you know, the celebrity historical. It doesn't, it also doesn't have to be the Aztecs. There are a lot of different ways you can do a historical. You can do something like Rosa. You can also do something like the Witchfinders. And you can also do something like Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. And you can also do something like the Haunting Villa Diodati. And I had to pick up the page reason, of the words there. I think the show looks astonishing, like in series 11 and 12. But for some reason, those episodes are beautifully produced. Like, just mm -hmm. they, they look so handsome. Think of Demons of the Punjab. Mm. Think of Rosa. Tesla, like, you know, they pull off New York in fucking Cardiff, yeah. for God's sakes, you know? Yeah. Good for them. Um, and here, yeah, like, like, this, is a, this is a very contained setting, but I feel yeah. like they've pulled in a director that can do the horror brilliantly, the suspense, the action, you know, the character stuff. Like, every box is ticking. It's ticking confidently. Mm. And, yeah, totally. And, what I think what it's doing is different from uh, like you know there are kind of uh, it's, correct me if I'm wrong there are three ish historicals in this season um, you've got haunting ability Adati you've got um, uh, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror and you've got Spyfall oh, which it. I'm yeah. sort of saying that's where it gets a bit ishy because there's a lot yeah. going on there there is um, but in each of those stories, they're doing something a bit different with what kind of a historical it is. Like Nikola Tesla is kind of a bit more of a conventional celebrity historical, I would say. Um, a little bit. Yeah, and more of a conventional Doctor Who story as well. It's like an alien baby. Yeah, story, isn't it? yeah. Haunting um, of Villa Diodati is also quite different. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, you know, Rosa and Demons of the Punjab are big kind of historical, like proper weighty historical pieces. Yeah. Well, and um, I think Jim definitely wanted to do that, didn't he? He wanted that kind of Hartnell-esque uh, weighty historical in 
his first series. Mm -hmm. Without jettisoning the kind of ability to do fun historicals as well. Like, I know you hate me doing this. I'm going to do it because I'm going to make a comparison to a Moffat episode. Roll your eyes at me. Um, but, like, like, let's kill Hitler, you know? Like, that's one of the few times we went to meet a, a well-known historical character mid-Moffat run. And it's just, like, farcical and stupid, and it makes no impact whatsoever. And it's all for a crap joke that Hitler's been thrown in a cupboard, you know? And it's just like... I think that's a great joke. Like, there's a, there's a Doctor Who story called The Shadow in the Glass, which is a sixth Doctor past Doctor adventure book. Yeah, which is all about Hitler and the Doctor having to like rub shoulders with Hitler um, in order to achieve certain things. And it's gripping. And what a waste. Mm -hmm. Like, what a waste. Whereas Chibnall I... absolutely is not wasting his history. Yeah, I suppose. I And, you know, not to defend Let's Kill Hitler that much. I don't think it really needs defending. Um but um <laughs> kind kind of two kind of two things uh which is one of them is that i don't think definitely as it progresses the moffat era is doesn't isn't really interested in doing historicals it um it likes doing bits of history but in a kind of moffaty kind of way like you know wedding of renaissance is a good example where winston churchill is there so it kind of goes through you know Winston Churchill and it does its best, you know, arguably the best historical, depending on your opinion, which is Vincent and the Doctor. Um, so it gets those feathers in, in its cap and after that it's not too interesting. Uh, and not to spend too much time on the, uh, you know, on the Hitler, th uh, the Hitler thing. Um, um, you know, I, I read some, and this is a detour, so I'll keep this quick, because I remember you did actually <laughs> Have, you did have something to say before I started this whole discussion. Oh, um, it's going to be so anticlimactic after this, but go ahead. Um, which is, I think I read someone say, uh, and I'm not sure if this was specifically in reference to the um, the book you were referring to, but I did see someone kind of going, if you do do, not necessarily saying that doing Hitler as a farce works as well, but is doing a drama story about Adolf Hitler because you know you were talking about is this too far for Doctor Who is doing you know the Doctor having to deal with essentially a, a, a mass murdering dictator who did the did, uh, you know is responsible for the Holocaust is that too is that too far for Doctor Who to go to do that kind of drama but then is the better approach to do, you know, are you being served, Mr. Hitler? Get in the cupboard. Ha mm. ah, ha you know, yeah. you have been watching, you know, like maybe just uh -huh. don't go there at all if you're going to do that. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that, maybe that's the answer. Yeah, if, if, maybe if that you're is, not going to do it for comedy not. well and if doing it for drama is too much, then maybe just involve Okay, so Jack, so I've only got one thing to say to you, okay? Mm -hmm. And I've been dying to get it out for half an hour. And it's simply okay. this. No, not get that out. Good grief. This is, oh. this is a family-friendly pot. No, it's not. I've said fuck loads on this, haven't I? Fuck shit. Bullshit. 
anyway. Oh no, <laughs> they're going to cancel us now. I, all I wanted to say Thanks. was this. I think the Cyberman score for series 12 is so good. And it's a yeah. proper industrial, exciting theme. A bit classic series, a bit earth shocky, but even more. It feels like he's literally banging pipes to make this music. It's so good. Mm. Second Akinola stepped up his game in series 12 in a massive way. Yeah, because um, oh, his I, I've always loved his music. Um, uh, and I, and you're right. He, you, he, 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 it's clear he's thought about the Cybermen as, as these metal monsters and has gone for these kind of metallic industrial sounds, which is terrific. And it's also, and which is also very different from, you know, the tuba or whatever it is that Murray Gold used. Um, but yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, in, I really liked his music in series 11 because it was after many years of Murray Gold. It's nice to be a bit more subdued and with this kind of. I think his score uh, for Punjab is the best score of a new series episode. It's stunningly good. Would you say, would you say that's the best score of the, of the, of the entire new series? New series. Yeah. God, absolutely. The, the, the whole sequence at the end where they're running away, where Prem gets shot where his uh soul goes up into it's and oh the 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 indian version of the doctor who theme tune it's done it's beautiful mm. um, but but this is yeah like you say this is a, a musician who's really thinking about like the tone of of the story yeah and i think i think it was you, you who actually pointed this out I think when you did your, you reviewed um, Resolution on your blog, because, you know, in series 11, the um, music was quite ponderous, I suppose. Yeah, if that was, ambient, maybe. Uh, yeah, ambient. Um, it, you know, it didn't, obviously, there were dramatic scores in it, but it didn't kind of go super high octane or anything like that. Yeah. And I think it was when... Um, you know, uh, when you reviewed Resolution, you're just like, you, you can kind of tell he's letting it loose a little bit. He goes, um, he goes mental in that one. Yeah, and then I think that carries over into into Series 12 as well, where he's really kind of, uh, without kind of sacrificing the kind of sound that he's bringing mm. to the show, he's go definitely going big or bigger. But like, I think you the, know, spiteful. The stories are bigger as well. They're doing mm -hmm. like pacier stories with bigger set pieces. So they kind of, yeah. if he did ambient music for that, that would be you, uh, People go and listen to um, the track in Spyfall called The Spy Master with the reveal of the master. That is an excellent piece of music. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things you get with him as a musician is I think he's very like I I think he knows the sound he wants and he but he also knows how to have fun with whatever genre Doctor Who is tapping into at a given time. Um, One thing I did notice watching Series Twelve is he doesn't do and someone pointed this out. Uh, Pete pointed out on on my other podcast uh, that Murray Gold tended to do like serious music and comedy music. Yes. And yeah. Second Akinola doesn't do comedy music. He he underscores comedy, 
but he doesn't do like oh i'm trying to think now and maybe maybe the show loses a little bit of something by not having that but there's more of a kind of consistency of tone with the music yeah i i think um it, it's it's a, it's an interesting one because obviously i think as time went on um actually i think probably from the beginning people always kind of going oh murray um, tone it down a little bit this is getting a bit loud um well you know how far uh, i can go do you remember that bit in the tv movie where it's like uh jesus is resurrected he's like oh my god do, 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 as he faints <laughs> You know, that's how bad this can get when you do comedy music, you know. So you kind of got to be a little careful. Yeah, yeah. But it's that strange thing where even though um, Murray's music can be quite overblown at its at its most and excessive, uh, it's, it's, it's a strange thing where even though it's been very nice having a new sound in the show and, a, you know, a sound I really love, there's also still a little part of me that's still after two seasons kind of adjusting to the fact yeah. that he's not there anymore. I'm less aware. I think I'm less aware of Second Akinola's music than I was. Murray Gold's mm -hmm. music was very apparent for good or for bad. Yeah. And then generally it was for good. Like the, the, I, I wouldn't, I, I think, I think Murray Gold's probably the strongest musician they've ever had on the show. And I'm including mm. the classic series in that. Um, well, there's a reason why, you know, his music played at the proms all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I bought the soundtracks and I've listened to them over and over again. And I have less so with Second Akinola's, but I still think he produces like very good music. And, and in this, it's, mm -hmm. it's terrific. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly for um, Haunting Ability Adati, he recognizes that less is more. Um, yeah, until the Cyberman comes, and that's when he kind of yeah. lets rip, and and he should, you know, it's a fucking robot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I but yeah, definitely in that first half, he kind of leaves it, it, these kind of subtle, disconcerting noises, and he, I think he's, he's, he, I think he's, he's using, probably, um, uh, he's using strings a lot. He's doing a lot of strings. Yeah, like that, that very classic. Sets me on edge, you know yeah and but he doesn't do it too much where you're like oh this is the horror music i imagine and you know i'm not a sound music i'm not a sound design expert i'm not a musician uh so i i, I might be just be spe speculating i imagine he's probably quite collaborative i reckon he's um very he he's willing to let the the sound the people who do the sound design like you know the lightning or the sound of the hand bursting out of a painting he's i think he's willing to like okay i'm gonna step back so these sounds create right. so it's more the of a drama collaboration than wallpapering the whole story with your signature yeah yeah that's probably a good way of describing it wallpapering well because um, there was just... moments in murray gold's time where i just couldn't hear the dialogue because the music was, yeah you know so blatant there was um, a Dead Ringers, an old Dead Ringers sketch from like 2006 or something. And I don't always think the Dead Ringers sketches are that funny, oh. but they did a Doctor Who parody one uh, where um, I think it was the 10th Doctor and Rose. 
escaping the Cybermen lair, and and it's like Rose and the Rose going, "What? I can't hear you. The music is so loud." Someone should have made that joke in an actual episode. I think. Yeah. Well, you. Well, we've never had a musical episode. I know. I well, I think they're more than capable. Mm. Um. Uh. Circling back round to Dear Darcy quickly, I've got one more thing I would really like to say, and that is, um. I mean, I think the whole episode is brilliant, but I really like the fact that there is essential. Are you smoking a pipe? It's a fake pipe. I was just like, oh, yes, music. Um, okay. Pop, 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 pop. Doing this podcast with Sherlock Holmes for a moment. Um, it's elementary, my dear Jack. I think that it's really nice that there's a, a five minute coda at the end of the story, which gives mm. each of the guest characters um like an out i really like i don't I can't remember the woman's name but the one who's basically there in a romance with byron turning around and saying well the spell is broken because you're a complete asshole i love that much. yeah and um polydori who is ridiculously hot and do you remember the actor from years and years <gasps> oh yeah he was involved in some very explicit gay sex scenes you know which are banked in my memory anyway sorry um sorry I, I think the other character you were referring to was uh claire uh was it claire claremont yeah that's right yeah 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 uh, but but polydori gets a moment where he looks at byron as if to say yeah go ahead, oh you yeah. had your chance <laughs> because at the beginning of the episode byron basically goes oh what does he say like frigid and wet or something and throws a look at mm -hmm. polydori Mm. And it's so, and it's great as well because she literally calls him out for like cowering behind her as a shield, flirting with the doctor, um, like lit all of it. Mm, no, it's so terrific, and uh, I, I, I know we're going to wrap up in a minute, but um, you know, you have that moment of Percy reciting. I, I'm not sure what he's, can't remember what he's reciting, but I think it's actually something he wrote. Mm um at the end i can't remember what it's, off the top of my head the perfect conclusion because of that last line which i wrote down in my book just that line on one page she was the universe and with that shot on jody whisker looking beautiful like that's mm. a terrific ending to a terrific episode yeah and also i don't somehow we didn't even touch upon the you know when we were talking about the macabre earlier we didn't even talk about that super it's, I think it's very Doctor Who in the way it talks about mortality, but that idea that they've given this famous poet and writer a flash of his own death. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and how he's, yeah, which is, you know, in some ways, quite, quite, I think it's a very authentically new series Doctor Who thing to do where, you know, you, he accidentally shows you a bit of your own future. Um, I know you don't, I. Yes, Gareth. Choose the second <laughs> question on your exam paper. Oh, sorry, that's not a new series, is it? I, but yeah, that whole ending is, you know, terrific. I think it's it 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 does that wonderful thing where you know, obviously, it sets up the finale, but then it doesn't. It's not like the cliffhanger ends with the choice being made. We yeah. get to back kind to, of do our goodbyes back to the guest with, characters uh, again, all sitting around having a reading, and it just feels like a like a complete piece, you know. Like we are, we are going off to follow the Cybermen, but this feels like an episode in its own right, and not just a stepping stone into the finale. Mm, yeah. Um, so even though I, th I think um, 
uh, it, it does the story for me a little bit, just a little gets trapped in the, we, we, this goes into the series finale now. We've got to do set up the series finale. I think, it, it get, again, it gets away with it because even though it does have its big, the big ending to the main plot is setting up the finale, it still gets to wrap up as a story in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, it gets to, it gets, to, it, it's not like Utopia where, you know, that cliffhanger is everything. And now none of the, we can't do anything that happens, but nothing, you can't resolve anything that happened beforehand because, oh my God, the master is back. Here you get the setup for the finale and then it's like, and now we, we, we have enough breathing space that we can wrap up this story by itself. So it can work as the setup, but it can also work as its own entirely self-contained story, which I think is really good. Do you know what this episode achieves? And it's the rarest of things. And you've done this with me for some time now, and you've spoken to me about Doctor Who even longer. I can't find a single thing to object to in this episode. So it doesn't yeah. it doesn't put a foot wrong. I gave this 10 out of 10 on my blog. I would give it 10 out of 10 now. I think it is a pitch perfect Doctor Who episode in execution, in its writing, in its music, in its acting, in what it's trying to achieve, in its individual moments, set pieces, characterization. It just ticks every box for me. Yeah. I I don't, I'm not sure I would call it completely perfect, but I'd say it's pretty close. I think I a hundred percent stand by um, calling it uh, my favorite Whitaker story and my favorite of the era. Um, Is that quite I think a it's... promising trend then that this came so close to the end of the second series, and obviously we're skipping into the third. That that your favorite episode here at that point that actually if if they replicate this level of quality going forward, yeah, I mean. Give her all the scripts. She clearly knows. Yeah. Well, I've doing. heard someone say that she should be the showrunner. Like, you know, she knows what she's oh. doing. Oh, but they do that all the time. Yeah. They're all, any any time there's a g- good guest writer, they'll always go. Oh, make Jamie Matheson the showrunner. Make. I was going to um, ask you this question: If you could have like a quorum of like four writers, yeah, from the new series uh-huh. to showrun the show together. And it could be across the new series. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think I think I'll exclude Russell and Stephen. Yeah, oh yeah, um, yeah. So that, that. so this is like guest writers that have come in. Actually, you do two, and I'll do two. Ah, uh, ooh, that's um, obviously Jamie Matheson. I think I'd go with Jamie Matheson and Sarah Dollard, but there are other writers I'd go for. I'd say that they're different. I'd throw in Rob Shearman just because I love his uh, his style and everything he's ever written. Um, mm-hmm. The fourth one. Oh, let's have Maxine Alderton. She's a cracking yeah, job here. Yeah. Um, oh, but there. Are, but again, there are. If the, oh, those are four, oh, there are so many other writers as well we could go for. Uh, it's, but yeah, that, the truth a, is, a, we probably a, wouldn't choose Chris Chibnall, would we? <laughs> I no no we I'm not going to be mean because he's exempt from the from the selection because he is the showrunner exactly and he just gave a thousand pounds to a fantastic charity I saw yesterday he's a very generous did he yes and I would say 
um, with series 12, which is far more to my taste than some of series 11, I feel like he's getting ever confident in the role of the showrunner uh, in terms of structuring a season, in individual episodes, in giving the Doctor standout moments. And the third season could potentially be phenomenal. It could be. Let's hope it is. If they're using this episode as a template, it could be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Well, I I eagerly await being impressed. Um, Jack, I've yes. got a question for you now. about. Uh, I know what you're going to ask. Please don't ask me this question. Now, we've already determined what we're doing next. Oh, have we? Yes. What are, well, let me ask you the question, Joe. Joe, what are we doing next? All rise. Bomb. Oh. Bomb. Bomb. Bring forward the prisoner. Bring forth Adric. Why isn't he here? Why is he never around when you want him? And for years after he's delivered his testimony before this court, he'll be, go, be going, now I'll never know if I got it right. If you thought that the trial of Stephen Moffat was going to be peak podcast excitement, you ain't seen nothing yet. The trial <laughs> of Adric begins soon. That's right. We don't know when, but it will happen soon. Um, all I know is I am in the somewhat unenviable task of defending Adric. That's right. I couldn't think of a better man for the job. Oh. <laughs> I've been thinking about that, you know. I, I'm, it may be a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to go for it full for all. Mm-hmm. I, I I admire that you you even volunteered for that. I think when we were discussing this, you were like, ah, oh, you know, you had to make the the defense of Stephen Moffat, and I got to make this the prosecution, which is so I I'm going to volunteer and make the case for Adric. I was like, oh, I'm going to make a case that he's an unsung hero of huge ability. <laughs> I, I, I look forward to, uh, I'll see you in court, Joe. All right, so bring your wig. <laughs> All right. But on that note, um, mm-hmm. it's been six weeks since we last did this. Um, no. Shall we... Um, step out of the episode in the usual way why not i nearly said for old time's sake but we're not we're not slowing down now oh wait we, we've done, we haven't done quotes this season no we completely oh we completely oh forgotten okay well can i do a quote that's that that's linked to the convention uh um, okay because this is the quote i heard all weekend from david maskell mrs remington fan the great healer has ordered you dead. <laughs> That's great. I did, I'm surprised they didn't that didn't chase you away from the convention. No. Well, he did a stunning. They tried to ki- um, Kim Woodburn impression as well. You know who that is. Um. No. From, uh, from how clean is your house? She's like, um, oh, oh, dearie, don't you start with me. You're a filthy little bitch. That's what you are. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> It sounds like you're doing a pretty good impression there yourself. She's a bit like the Rezies from Paradise Towers. Ah. She's that grotesque, but she's a real person. Well, uh, another reason for me to get my season 24 box set. I get on it. What's your quote then? 
Um, uh, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm going to go with, ah, my arms, my legs, my everything. Fabulous. We'll end on a moment of panto. Yeah, that's right. Perfect for this story. Um, so whilst we have been overwhelmingly positive in this episode, and to be fair, we were overwhelmingly negative in our first episode, there will That's be right. the balance will be restored next week. You're right. Perfectly balanced. That's what this next episode's That's gonna right. be. Uh, you ain't heard my arguments yet. Um uh, do you wanna do you wanna lead us out? Of course, I'll take the charge in three, two, one, the nylon be praised. praised. Oh, we still got it. We still, after all this time, Joe, it's been 80 years. We can still do it. We have not been husbands this long without being in sync at some point. All right, let's go renew our, our podcast vows then. Oh, is that a thing? Oh, lovely. I don't, I, I, I don't know if it is. I just made it up, but I'm sure, I'm sure we can get that done somewhere. Okay, well, I, we'll go back to the Y boss in the site. They've got a lovely honeymoon suite there, so we'll Ooh, skip off lovely, there lovely. now. But oh. we will catch you next time. All right, see you next time. <laughs>